welcome to the Minute 66 podcast. After successfully qualifying for the World Cup 2022, we speak to Uruguayan football expert and owner of Uruguay Football English, Alvaro Perez, to take a deeper look at the Uruguayan national team on the road to Qatar. Alvaro's, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me, Richard. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about was the, the World Cup draws just been made. Um, so how are you feeling as an Uruguay fan? Are we confident? Do we like the draw? Um, I like it in terms of the excitement of what it promises, which is almost guaranteed drama because of just, I think, the history of Uruguay, you know, the, the history they have with these specific teams. You know, they, they played um, elimination matches with Portugal in 2018, Korea 2010, and obviously Ghana in 2010. And all three of those matches were pretty emotional and dramatic in themselves. So I think, um, you know, um, I don't know, th- there just seems to be this. As opposed to 2018, which, you know, I always felt that Uruguay played teams that they had not much history with. So, for example, you had Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Russia, which, you know, maybe you can say Russia, 1970, Uruguay played the uh, Soviet Union in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. But, you know, mostly, you know, you really didn't have that sort of tradition or at least a rivalry. But now that, you know, the, these emotions are so fresh. Um, I, I, I caught a meme yesterday online that really made me laugh. It was like this old Simpsons meme, and it shows like three characters really upset at Homer, and the three characters were Korea, uh, Ghana, and uh, Portugal, and, and Uruguay is basically Homer kind of like driving, you know, just like sort of absentmindedly. So I thought that was pretty funny. And it kind of shows really like how the the stories really kind of naturally set up for, I think, a, an amazing group, honestly. Like I think all the matches are going to be, you know, wonderful and, and very, very emotional. It is. I always like like three European teams in one group because it's. Yes. I think yes, you, want yes, play, yes. you want to play teams from all over the world. Yes, of course. No, for sure. Although, although there is that rare account which you know there is a possibility from what I understand that Scotland might be in England's group if they do advance past you know the Ukraine and Wales. So mm. I think in that rare extent, I think I would be very very excited to see that sort of you know cross. Uh, you know, sorry, in intercontinent, well, not inter actually, sorry, within the continental matchup. But yeah, no, it's it's terribly exciting. Um, I know Korea qualified first, undefeated. Um, they hardly even conceded any goals. So they're very, very strong right now, it seems. Um, Ghana, the thing is, I, I don't know much about Ghana or, or Korea in detail, except for, you know, the, the obvious stars that they have. Mm-hmm. But I do know that they are powerhouses in their regions. Portugal, obviously, I'm much more familiar with them. Um, having a lot of Uruguayan players play in Portugal, following that as well. Plus, obviously, the the last uh, World Cup, which we got to see them very, very up close in that sense. But the three the three teams, obviously, I mean, it seems like a very even group. Like anything could honestly happen in this sense. Hmm. I think I would make you favourites, but it's going to be interesting. Definitely. It's interesting because Uruguay, you know, Uruguay doesn't like that. Um, they they kind of feed off the sort of the mythology or this sort of story of being the underdog which is very interesting i know a lot of teams actually have that you know the there's a lot of the giant killers and then they'll play a team of you know maybe you would consider maybe in terms of fifa ranking you know that would be somewhat lower but then you'll notice uruguay will struggle more with that team and then do really really well against the uh you know the bigger team in general Uh, case in point right now i don't know if you know but um if uruguay were to qualify they would play either well presumably uh brazil or maybe Switzerland. We're just saying presumably. They seem to be the strongest uh, teams in that group. Mm. Almost everyone in Uruguay wants Brazil. They don't want Switzerland. 
because they know that Uruguay gets really up for those games against Brazil, especially in the World Cup. Yeah. And they're afraid that, yeah, Switzerland would just give them a very hard time in that sense. It's interesting that, so Uruguay, Uruguayans consider themselves to be sort of like an underdog country in football. Oh, right? absolutely. Absolutely. No, absolutely. For sure. It's Without a doubt. interesting because the European perspective, I, I felt is always like the Uruguay, they're a bit like, sort of almost like Croatia in that, yes, it's a small country, but this is what we do. We do football. You know what it is? It's uh... very, very good at it. And <laughs> yes, there's, there's a, I don't know if you know Gabriel Marcotti, an Italian journalist. I don't know. Uh, but he always, he said for years and years and years, he's always said, he said Uruguay is football. It's a country of three million people. They yeah. win World Cups. Generation after generation, world-class players. So it's interesting to hear that you still think of yourselves as sort of the, the underdog. No, okay. You know, the, the last uh, few years with Tabara's Uruguay is sort of a very defensive side that I think uh, benefited a lot from having wonderful strikers and Suarez and Cavani in that sense. So you would see Uruguay qualify and do well, but the thing is sometimes the way Uruguay wins is not the way that typically you'd see a, a dominant team win sometimes. For example, if you're watching, let's just say, I'm, first thing that pops in my head is uh, Spain 2010, maybe France 2018. So holding the ball, controlling it. So Uruguay always feels that they have to really suffer. Like they really have to I remember in the last World Cup I, I don't know if it was BBC but um, a lot of the pundits were talking and almost in every game they were like wow you're really they play like a club team like did you see the way they get stuck in the way they defend like they don't even want to hold the ball they they'll grind out 70 minutes if they have to it's very so it, it, you know in, in this sense maybe the the style that they play kind of lends itself I think to sort of sacrifice and and digging in and, and you know you, you really have to earn the win even against easier teams sometimes Uruguay just kind of sits back and kind of you know sort of just likes to have that that idea that they worked for the win and incredibly, they actually, um, they basically raise like children and, and, and the whole population with this being sort of like a glorious way of winning. You know, mm. the, the idea of, of grinding it out and, and holding on, you know, and, and somehow, you know, they, they love it when like Uruguay kind of survives last second when it hits a crossbar, bounces off the line. Or I'm not sure if you heard about recently, um, Uruguay's goalkeeper caught the ball practically inside the net against Peru. It, it was, it kind of became a viral worldwide. Right. It was incredible. So, like, the ball was like, I think literally four centimeters um, over the line, <laughs> which is, you know, just such a small fraction of the ball. I almost had a heart attack when that happened, to be honest. <laughs> to be honest. It was 91st minute. You know, you felt like we're two minutes or three minutes away, um, you know, from the World Cup in this sense. And then randomly the ball just sort of blows in. But I'm just saying, like, it's just in, in that in that view, I don't know, there's a, there's a long uh, a long time tradition of Uruguay winning games that way and not dominating. So they feel that even though they've won, when they do, it's still like, you know, they barely survive or, or you know, they, they kind of barely crawl over the, the finish line. So I don't know. It's, it's very, I, I do, yeah, I, I can see that being, um, you know, it's sort of like an interesting distinction in that sense. But yeah, no, they, they do really do see themselves as, uh, as underdogs. So possibly because, you know, they're surrounded by such powerhouses in South America. Um, not to continue too much about this, but if you if you look at the player, not just the population, but the player base, like Uruguay, I believe, has something like 500 professionals in Colombia. We're like they're in the thousands. Mm. So we're, we're talking like literally they, they feel like these countries have so many more players to choose from in that sense. So I think that's, you know, again, just another factor playing into that, uh, that psychology, I think. Yeah. It is interesting because you, you almost think I almost think of Uruguay a bit like New Zealand in rugby. And I don't know if you know about the New Zealand All Blacks. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, My father is a massive fan, actually. 
But the the because again it's a tiny country, two and a half, three million people, but they're obviously the dominant force in rugby and always have been. Um, you speak to people over there, and it's more a lot of the players are third and fourth generation all blacks, so they're yes. bred to be rugby players over there. Yes. Um, oh yeah. So it's interesting. Um, it's interesting what you were saying about the style as well, because the Uruguayan style has been compared a bit to the British style. Uh, even by Uruguayans, like a few have oh, said, yeah. like Uruguayans do well in England because it's it's a linear style of football that Uruguayans play. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I know Uruguayans they really appreciate, it. and I think you know over the years with the Premier League becoming more international, they've gotten to you know obviously watch matches from there a lot more. So there, there's this idea, and they hear this a lot from the English announcers, you know, that get stuck in. And that just, you know, riles, I think, Uruguayans and Argentinians as well. Um, I think, uh, mm. you know, very, very similar football cultures. They just love that. They love that aspect of uh, the British game. Um, in fact, actually, recently I was, I was watching uh, an interview. So in 1980, they had the Intercontinental Cup final. It was Nacional of Uruguay against Nottingham Forest of England. And you should hear the players, the Uruguay players. They were like, they just were enamored with the, Brit the British players, the English players. Although I know there's, there was a lot of, you know, players from all over Nottingham Forest had many internationals from Europe but still it was just that that style they just they thought it was just such a wonderful game to play and they were saying there was a like minutes to go and they weren't giving up they're scratching clawing Nottingham Forest to get into the box and there is sort of there's a like a great respect for that and uh traditionally yeah I I, I do know that you know English uh English particularly Scottish football there's actually a, a famous Scotsman who came and trained several Uruguayans you know in the outset of uh Euro of Uruguayan football when it first began late 18th century um and so yeah there, there's there is a big big tradition um with British teams with br the British style of play um it could be yeah it could be I, I don't know if it's you know in terms of the passing style who knows I suppose maybe that's generation I don't even know sometimes, honestly, if that actually exists. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, that certain styles of play, you know, that is inherent to a team over the last hundred years. I'm not sure too much, but I do think that the one thing uh, English football has never lost is that sort of love for the fair challenge, the fair tackle, yeah. and, you know, and just kind of fairly going in and, you know, I don't know, there's just something, I'm, I'm almost getting like actually goosebumps just actually even talking about this. No, really, to be honest, but yeah, in Uruguay, I mean, I've lived there as a child for a few years and you can really see it in the, in the, in the youth system, absolutely. The managers, the coaches, the parents, everything was so, they almost appreciate that kind of player more than let's just say a James Rodriguez, which I find fascinating to be honest. Um, you're like I've, I've even actually heard this from a Colombian friend that Uruguay would rather choose an inferior player who gets stuck in rather than James, right? In that in in you know certain context, basically. But yeah, it just kind of I think that says a lot, though. Yeah, that is interesting. In that sense. <laughs> uh, so it's funny you were just talking about Nottingham Forest and. I was thinking because Brian Clough was the manager of that Forest side. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, famously retired with Nottingham Forest getting relegated, and I did think about him when I was watching Uruguay at the Copa America in the summer with Tabares. Oh, okay. With the older coach who'd been great, who people didn't want to see go. But it was yes. the time to go. Yes, absolutely. Um, so what was the reaction when he finally was asked to leave? I felt, there were, I felt sad. Oh, I, 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 this is yeah. such an, an iconic coach in your in world football. 
there was there was a lot of anger actually from a lot of the ex-players um and a lot of them there's a saying in, in south america which is called uh basically like in ret- you know in retrospect once you know what's going to happen so they, they call monday's newspapers like once you have monday's newspaper you know now you can see that it was a good decision so they were referencing the fact that uruguay up until that point had won two of the last four qualifiers and were basically setting themselves up for what could have been a direct qualification but a lot of the players like sebastian abreu um they essentially criticized the uh, Uruguay FA saying they couldn't handle pressure that Uruguay essentially had this situation happen in 2010 2014 so th- there was a, there was a lot of uh, a kickback a lot from from former players the current players though they seem to um there, there, were, there were a few rumors of the players sort of falling out a little bit. I'm not sure how true they were. They, they seem to support the new manager. You know, the new manager was, he's, I think he was very cleverly chosen. He's, uh, he's from the generation of them. Like he had Diego Alonso actually played with the, those players, many of them, like, well, when they were younger, like Luis Suarez, for example. So he played in Argentina and Uruguay, um, ended up coaching in Mexico, but he's a, he's a fairly young player and they know him. Like he's, he's from their world. Like he understands footballers. And one of the first things he did was, which was actually honestly, extremely popular. And this could have been what actually changed public perception actually was that he, um, he hired the fitness coach from Atletico Madrid, who has been with Diego Simeone for like, honestly, 15 or more years. Mm. And he's considered one of the best in Europe and he's Uruguayan, but for many years, he was just never, he lived in, you know, he traveled around. He was just never involved with Uruguay. So bringing him in, he actually literally was flying in as if he was a player, a capped player. Mm. Um, fans were kind of, I don't know, just ecstatic about that. I don't know. I found it fascinating that a fitness coach was what won over the new manager initially, I suppose. But, um, you know, in, in general, people were upset. But I think people were also very upset at the way Uruguay was playing. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, if, if people were watching highlights of this in Europe, because, you know, sometimes you see the, the result, you know, Brazil won 4-1, Argentina won 3-0. Those games could have been way worse. I, th- I thought Brazil could have won that 9-1. Mm-hmm. Argentina could have, it was, they were literally the worst performances I had seen in Uruguay, maybe ever. The, the team looked dead, like actually almost like they were refusing to even fight back. So there was, when I saw that, and I think when a lot of people saw that, there was definitely a cause for alarm. And then, you know, naturally, um, who do you blame? (laughs) That's the thing. And suddenly players who are not performing, they keep getting called up. Uh, Players who are performing in Europe, they're not getting called up. And well, honestly, the new manager immediately called up the sort of the obvious players that that seem to be popular. Yeah. That was the yeah. thing with Diego Alonso. The first Uruguay squaddy squad called up. I loved yeah. it. And I went, yeah, I think that's probably the best 23 players Uruguay's got. That was Which my In the case yeah. under Tabarez, there was a lot of there was a lot of MLS players that I'd never heard yeah. of and guys who, and I was like, this guy's not getting called up and this guy isn't. And absolutely. No, you're right. For example, uh, you know, Brian Rodriguez, I think he's a he's a good player. Um, you know, he just hadn't really done much with a national team he had, and he had a lot of opportunities almost more than I think player uh, several players would have had maybe in other nations you know um, so the fact is that he was being called up a lot and not you know uh, in terms of the results like I mean I'm not I'm no expert but he I could see from Elena's perspective he was not producing on the pitch and then suddenly yeah he started calling up uh, Matias Oliveira uh, who's uh, you know left back on Getafe and he's I think he's wonderful like he's consistently excellent there Damian Suarez he's the right back at Getafe consistently excellent as well he played really well against Real Madrid recently when Getafe beat them so you know you just had these players that 
like it almost seems too easy at this point. Like you're, you're seeing these guys thrive in Europe and, you know, it seems, you know, the, the football manager and all of us playing almost in a video game, you would think that those would be the players being called up, but thankfully, yeah, they were. And the thing was, again, you know, what gave him reason was um, they immediately performed. I mean, Matias Oliveira pretty much won himself the left back position off the bat right away. And he has not lost it since. Funny enough, he, re- he ended up replacing a player that Tavares really liked, who plays in Roma now, who is Matias Vigna. Mm. And uh, it's kind of amazing, actually, because Vigna had, you know, quite a while with, under Tavares. And right away, Oliveira just took his position, at least his starting position in that sense. One of the more interesting ones I have to ask you while we're talking about this was um, Facundo Palestra. Yeah, that's fascinating. Who was struggling and not getting minutes oh. at Alaves oh. at the bottom of La Liga. And... I again, I was looking at the squad and thinking maybe he's worth a call up because he's on the yeah. United's books. He's playing. Yeah. He's playing minutes in La Liga yeah, uh, yeah. rather than these thirty-year-olds who are playing in the MLS. But yeah. uh, obviously, he came in, went straight into the starting eleven. It was interesting what Alonso was saying about it was largely the stylistic aspect he brought to the side. Yes, yeah, so as if he could... his desire yeah. to break the lines, his energy he brings aside. Oh, yeah. Well, if you see the way he's... I mean, it's almost amazing, actually, because, you know, he played really well um, in his first two matches with Alonso. Like, and I mean, extraordinarily well. He's remarkable. And then he... Uh, since then, he only got four minutes with Alaves. Four minutes on the pitch. You know, and we're talking bottom side here. So you're thinking, you know, if he's this good, he should be starting. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, the idea was that people were actually very surprised in Uruguay, and he was called up again. And he was wonderful again. I mean, he, he was yellow-carded against Peru, so he couldn't play against Chile. But his performance and... His speed, uh, the way he was closing down opponents. So it wasn't, so he, I was actually surprised. I didn't even know this was an aspect of the game that he had in him. You know, his, the, the ability to actually, like, he was just chasing players all over, but his speed and acceleration were actually pretty. Like, I, I was really, really surprised. He was chasing guys down maybe with 15-meter head start. He caught up to them at one point. The Peruvian defenders were trying to shield the ball, run back at the goalkeeper. So it was really, really impressive. Um, and, yeah, the fact that, you know, Palicia was absolutely outstanding um, in three games, consecutive qualifiers. And there were, you know, important qualifiers, too. It's just, you know, it's interesting. I guess, you know, people in Uruguay have been thinking, okay, you know, there must be something to do with the style. Um, maybe Palestri needs a team that already, you know, pushes the lines up. And then once the space has been recovered or gained, then maybe he can thrive. It seems Alaves is a team that's more defensive. So maybe Palestri, you know, I'm, I'm sure the manager knows what he's doing. That's the thing, right? It's, so I'm a Manchester United fan. So United okay. fans have a huge vested interest in Palestri and we've not been able to understand anything about this Alaves loan all the way through. We were looking at, because you, you don't watch many of those games because you don't get access to them in England, but we'd be looking at his stats when he was playing and he'd, he'd touched the ball four times in 70 minutes. Yeah. And we'd be yeah. like, how, how is this possible that a team have the ball so little? But I think that is the style of Alaves. It's yep. very, very defensive. Yes slow the game down, break up the yes. play, stop the other team getting any momentum. And they've had a few coaches while he's been there. I think they're on something like the third different coach since he went there. Because so, he went middle of last season, he went initially. Yes, exactly. He sort of seems to be winning the first coaches. Yeah, like the first coach and yeah. then he went, and then he sort of won over the second coach, and then he went. And um, so it's been difficult for him. But I know there were some United fans did think he might come back in January just because he suits Ranjek's style, because he is high energy, press machine, aggressive, and he does look like someone who is suited for English football. 
That would be very interesting to see because you know because you, you see Pelistri, he's uh, you know he's a pretty small guy actually, right? So, and you know, and I know I know I watch quite a bit of Premier League. I know how physical the league is. I know, uh, for example, Bentancur recently had to change his entire game. He's very aggressive now, and I think he's brought it that back with the national team. So seeing Pelistri there, I think would be very 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 interesting. I know I know he did well with the reserve team. I was watching. Incredible. I was watching a lot of the reserve team highlights and, you know, he was getting assists and, you know, showing that, you know, he obviously has, you know, his abilities. Um, so I'm very interested in seeing that because I think, um, I don't know, just the fact that he's rarely playing at Alaves. Although here's the thing, if you do, I'm not sure if you have, if you've gotten the opportunity to watch any of his games, I've, I've seen a few and most of the time, Pelistri, you'll see him. I mean, he's, he's almost kind of like blocked out of the game, actually, in a sense, you know, you'll, you'll see Alaves defend a lot and they'll maybe boot up. And by the time Pelistri receives it, he'll have, have maybe two or three guys on him mm. so Pelistri cannot do much except pass it back and then you'll have LFS hold on to possession for a few minutes and then you usually kind of lose it I mean there's a reason why they are at the bottom of the table so it, it, it was very very frustrating seeing Pelistri um you know come up. I, I even have an app so whenever Pelistri comes on my app rings usually lately it's been 84th minute 83rd and I'm thinking yeah. wow is, is it even worth turning on the television at this point you know 83rd minute they're losing three nil and he comes on so I don't know, it, you know, it seems, I don't know, it seems like they know, you know, obviously he, they know he must have something, obviously the, you know, the qualifiers I do not think would go unnoticed, but like I said, it, it is, yeah, no, it is definitely one of the, uh, the oddest, I don't think I've seen this in a long time, honestly, for the national team, a player that is hardly playing and is absolutely crucial. Actually, maybe the only time I can think of that was when Alvaro Recobo was suspended for a year at Inter uh, for his passport issue. And he just kept playing for Uruguay. Like Uruguay was the only time he could play. So, but that was, I think, an exception because Recobo was seen as sort of like the, the hope of the next generation, essentially. Yeah, he was he was one of those wonderful players as well. You got the impression he didn't really need to train or play. He was one of those guys who would just walk onto the pitch and just score from 40 yards. Yeah. One of my all-time no. favorite Uruguayan players. I used to love oh, watching really? him. Uh, it was very rare. He was in, he very rarely played at Inter. It seemed he was always injured. Or no, Marathi loved him, and he always oh, played. He yes, said, yeah. "We pay him stupid money, and we'll always yes. keep him." Because I personally, I love him. It's Yes, yes, yes. It's true. Yeah, he had a very close friendship with Inter's president, actually, which is very interesting as well, right? You're right, actually. He just wanted to keep Rakoba on the payroll. <laughs> but the Rakoba was actually very interesting because, and I remember telling you before about the whole get stuck in culture. Mm. So Rakoba was seen as a player that didn't do that. And even though he was, you know, seen as very talented, very powerful, uh, left-footed player, a lot of the fans were asking of him, you know, this, this sort of role that he just wasn't used to. So I remember once uh, Jorge Fossati, Uruguay's manager, was interviewed once and he just said that the media and the fans drove drove Rakoba crazy he said he 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 wanted to he described him as wanting to run around and chase people in the field but he didn't know how to do it so he was trying to sort of like I don't know sort of like fulfill this um sort of ideological role as like this the, this sort of quintessential Uruguayan player that's talented as well as getting stuck in and chasing players and and defending and you know he just wasn't used to that so you know Fosati was just saying how much he struggled with that for several several years and you can really see it with Rakoba. It was a very uh, interesting love-hate relationship uh, between, I think, uh, the fans and him. Maybe a little bit of frustration in that sense, but I've always loved him. He was always um, one of my top, top favorite players ever, actually, for Uruguay, ever, yes. easily. One of mine. I always love watching him play. Right, um, so I, we'll leave it there for this week. Um, yeah, perfect. Yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Richard, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. That's always great. You know, for me, just, just uh, getting the chance to just discuss football is always wonderful for me. So I really, really appreciate uh, you bringing me on.